Rise and Fall by George Mann Ian Chesterton stands watching the ponderous rise and fall of the time rotor in the bright gleam of the console room, listening to the grating whine of the ship's engines, wondering, not for the first time, where the old man is taking them this time. The doctor himself stands nearby, beside the console, his fingers dancing over the controls like a pair of ancient bony spiders. For once, Ian muses, the time traveller appears to know what he is doing. Ian turns to see Barbara watching them from the other side of the room. He offers her a conspiratorial smile. Susan is trying on costumes in one of the wardrobe rooms elsewhere on the ship. They've already been treated to a glimpse of a Regency ball gown and a shimmering gold dress from the 29th century. Ian wonders what'll be next. For a moment, there is no sound other than the wheezing roar of the engines and the constant background hum of the ship. Barbara steps forward and looks as if she is about to say something when she hears the sound of Susan's voice echoing from a doorway behind her. Oh, Barbara, do come and see. She shrugs apologetically and then turns about and disappears into the depths of the ship in search of colourful silks and crinolids, leaving Ian alone once more with the Doctor. Ian sighs. He glances back at the Doctor, who remains silent, brow furrowed, concentrating on the panel of dials and switches before him. So, Doctor, what is it you have in store for us today? The Doctor looks up momentarily, sniffs, and then returns to his work. All in good time, my boy. All in good time. Ian rolls his eyes. It is then that the ship finally judders to a stop, and Ian has to reach out and clutch at the console to steady himself. When he looks up, the doctor is already eyeing the scanner, which displays what appears to be a grassy, verdant landscape outside the ship. The doctor pushes a button on the console, and the doors slowly open, accompanied by a loud buzzing sound. Bright daylight streams in through the opening. The Doctor strolls towards it, looking pleased with himself. Hold on a moment, Doctor. Shouldn't we fetch the others? Says Ian. The Doctor looks frustrated by this potential delay. He waves his hand dismissively, puffs out his chest. Stop prattling, Chester Tom. They'll be perfectly safe in the ship. Come Shaking his head, Ian follows the doctor out into the striking sunlight, shading his eyes with the back of his hand as they adjust to the harsh light. He feels the warmth of the sun caressing his skin. He finds the doctor surveying the landscape, smiling and tapping his foot contentedly, chuckling to himself. Ian squints in the bright light and the world seems to resolve before him. It's breathtaking unspoiled, a lush, grassy savanna, punctuated by gentle rolling hills and a shimmering lake of azure blue. Fluffy clouds scud overhead, 
and an enormous moon hangs low in the sky, so clear that Ian can discern its marked and puckered surface, huge swollen craters and seas of grey regolith. He turns from side to side, drinking it all in. The whole place seems somehow primordial, brand new. He glances at the doctor, a question in his eyes. The doctor smiles. When he speaks, it is with a nonchalant, carefree air. It's a good place as any. I thought we were all in need of a little rest after our brief escapade in France. You're not wrong, says Ian, with feeling. He's grinning now. Are you sure you're not just trying to persuade us to stay, bringing us to a beautiful place such as this? Not at all, Chesterton, not at all. Ian laughs at the doctor's conciliatory tone. Wait till Barbara sees this place, he says, looking out across the lake, filling his lungs with the fresh, cool air. It'll be nice to spend some time not getting ourselves involved in local politics. Something stirs in the corner of Ian's right eye. He turns towards it. It's nothing but a momentary flash of movement, the ghost of something passing by. But suddenly, his contented mood is banished. He wonders if his mind is playing tricks on him. He's seen so much recently on his travels with the doctor that he might just be imagining things that aren't there. But just when he's ready to concede that it was nothing, he sees another. And this time, he's able to get a better look. It's a face, a pale, ghostly face that seems to bloom into existence for a split second before blinking away again. Lost. Did you see that? exclaims Ian loudly. Hmm? What? The doctor is staring up at the moon. That face, that... Look, look. Look, there's another one. And another. Ian points to the faces hovering in the air nearby. They appear and disappear in the briefest of flashes, like momentary splashes of ink. He's able only to get the slightest impression of what they look like from these glimpses. They have long, equine noses and heavy, ridged brows. But he realises when he's able to focus on one of them for a split second longer, they belong to thin, humanoid figures. Fascinating, says the Doctor. And for the first time in a long while, Ian thinks he means it. The old man truly is fascinating. The two travellers watch, transfixed, as more and more of the strange pale faces blossom out of the air before them, appearing for the slightest of seconds before disappearing again, as if they had never been there at all. Wonderful! The doctor grins and claps his hands together. What are they? says Ian, both awestruck and alarmed. I have absolutely no idea, said the doctor with a cheerful chuckle. No idea at all. The pale-skinned creature watched the two figures with nervous eyes as it lowered its head 
and took a long, welcome drink from the cool water of the lake. It had no real sense of passing time, no units by which to measure the long periods between its visits to the watering place, but the diorama had been there long enough now to become a familiar sight to it, a constant, unwavering fixture, a part of the landscape. The two figures had not changed, had not moved. The creature in time had aged and grown old, but the two figures just looked on whenever it returned to this place, throughout all the long years of its existence. Nevertheless, the creature still behaved skittishly around the figures, as it had done since the day of their arrival when it had seen them appear on the brow of the hill and had approached them, reaching out tentatively to touch them, to see if these strange, unmoving things were real. Even now, it was unsure. It had been unable to tell if they were alive or dead. That had been years ago. Now the creature had returned here to die, it could not articulate this thought, but all the same it knew that its own time had come. Some biological imperative had caused it to return to the watering place to take a final drink and to die in the shadow of the strange figures on the hill. Around the creature, others of its kind flocked in their multitudes, both to drink from the lake and to investigate the strangers and their mysterious structure. For some reason, they were drawn to these interlopers, intrigued by their otherworldliness, their strangeness. But the creature could not articulate this either. The creature gave a sound approximating a sigh and lay down in the long grass, resting its head by the shore, listening to the gentle lapping of the water. The last things it saw were the silhouettes of the two figures and their tall box on the hill, backlit by the setting sun. Kirik adjusted his hide jacket and wiped the sweat from his brow with the back of his hand. Around him, the village was bustling, alive with chatter and the rich aromas of roasting meat. The females had just returned from the hunt, bearing pallets heavy with animal carcasses and sticky fruit. Now the males were preparing it, flensing the meat from the bones and cooking it over fire pits on the wooden spits. That night, there would be a great feast, a celebration. That night, Kilik's child, Efric, would finally come of age. Kilik was almost bursting with pride. The sun was beating down on his back. Kilik finished adjusting the tributes he had hung over the doorway of their hut, 
Small charms carved from bone and figurines woven from the long grasses that lined the watering place and went inside. Efric was sitting alone on his pile of furs and he glanced up when Killick entered. He looked thoughtful, Killick considered, and perhaps a little scared. The ceremony is nothing to be afraid of, son. The boy nodded, but did not speak. He was toying with a small bone icon in the shape of a box, turning it over and over in his fingers. It is a great honour. Today is the day you take the village tributes to the unmoving ones. You should be proud. Again, a nod from the boy. Killick leaned against the wall of the hut, exasperated. What is it, Efric? The child rubbed a hand up and down his long nose. Why? His voice was soft. Why do we do it, father? What point is there in these tributes? Killick smiled. He crossed the room and lowered himself onto the bundle of furs beside the boy. It's just an old tradition. It stretches back generations to me, to my father, to his father before him. It's our way of showing our appreciation to the strangers. But what for? said the boy, more confident now that his father was not berating him for his earlier questions. What use is there in it? Killick shrugged. Some believe the strangers to be spirits and that the tributes appease them. And you? I don't know, Efric. The strangers on the hill have been there for a very long time. Generations of our family have studied them. I don't know what they are. I cannot believe in spirits. But, but I know they have taught us much. The boy looked confused. But they do not move. They do not speak. Killick grinned. Look at the clothes on your back. Our ancestors learned to make them by studying the strangers. This house, we learned to build it by studying the strangers' box. I could go on. Efric nodded. I think I understand, Father. Good. Then you will carry the tributes to the hill this evening. Efric placed the bone icon on the floor by his feet. Yes, father, I will. Ian cannot believe his eyes. The faces have now become a haze. A blur of constant motion as they burst into existence and then disappear again with alarming speed and regularity. None of them appears for more than a moment or two, each less than a second, but there are thousands of them swarming all around him. Shapes materialize out of the ether now. 
structures that resemble buildings. But they do not remain visible long enough for Ian to be truly sure. With each passing second, the landscape appears to be reinventing itself. A canvas that is constantly being reworked, repainted, to resemble something else. Ian has only the impression of industry, industry and faces. Thousands and thousands of alien faces. Paul read over his notes one last time, trying to suppress the feeling of nausea that was threatening to overcome him. He thought for a while about leaving, about walking out of the lecture hall there and then, heading off down the street back to his HAB building, where he wouldn't have to stand before 300 people, people he knew would do nothing but ridicule him for his ideas. He took a deep breath. He couldn't go. This was something he had to do. He knew he was right. All the theories about the two strangers and the box on the hill, everything he'd been told, they were wrong. He knew it. He'd dedicated his life to proving it. These strangers, these ancient figures, were known as the unmoving ones. Thought to be relics from a civilization that inhabited the planet before Paul's own people were even conceived. But Paul knew that for the ridiculous notion it was. The stranger's age was undeniable, of course. The records of their presence went back almost as far as history itself. But Paul knew, emphatically, they had nothing to do with an ancient indigenous race. He knew this because he could prove they were still alive. His studies had shown that the strangers were actually moving. Slowly, admittedly, infinitesimally slowly. But all the same, they were moving, which meant that they were still alive. These strangers, these aliens that Paul's people had based their entire civilization on, were still watching them, even now. And this was where Paul's theories got truly bizarre, because he thought he could explain it. The visitors were caught in a different time, experiencing everything at a different rate to the rest of the world. But he wasn't even going to mention that. He knew talk like that would have him thrown out altogether. Better to keep his wilder notions to himself. Paul heard a sound behind him. He turned to see the porter waiting for him. They're ready for you, he said. Callbox was hiding under his bed curled up in a ball as small as he could make himself. His parents were downstairs, barricading the doors, 
emptying the food cupboards into sacks and shouting at one another. But Kolbox knew it was no use. The war had finally come. The war they had been trying to avoid for so long. The war that the voice casters had warned them about, spreading across the planet as the bombs rained down from the separatist colony on the moon above. Callbox didn't really understand what all the fighting was about. He didn't know what separatists were, other than the people who no longer wanted to live on the same planet as him, and who were now blowing everything up, destroying the cities and killing his friends. People who wanted something called a revolution. Callbox just wished they'd take their revolution and go away. And he knew that wasn't going to happen. The sounds of the bombs were too close for that, shaking the very foundations of the half building. Nervously, Callbox peeled open his eyes. He could see the box. Carefully, he reached out and pulled it towards him. He pushed open the lid and peered inside, wincing involuntarily as another explosion sounded nearby, ringing in his ears. He reached into the box and withdrew the two dolls. He stared at their faces. They were strange, but at once familiar too. Unlike his own face with his long nose and heavy brow, and dressed in unusual clothing too. He propped the figures up before him. What would you do? He said. What would you do? Stillness. Silence. Ian and the doctor stand in the ruins of a vast city, crumbling, decaying architecture extending upwards all around them, blotting out the sky. From great fallen columns to the immense walls of a ruined fortress, suddenly the landscape is littered with the debris of a thousand years of occupation or more. Ian can see the shattered remains of a tall, box-like building, its shape and dimensions echoing that of the TARDIS, only five, six times larger and hewn from grey stone. He looks at the doctor, a bewildered expression on his face. What happened here? The doctor sighs, shaking his head slowly from side to side. Evolution, Chesterton. A race of people come and gone. We saw, we witnessed the birth and death of a new culture. Ian looked astounded. You mean to say that we've just seen the rise and fall of an entire alien civilization? He says, incredulous. Precisely said the doctor, a satisfied gleam in his eye. Precisely that, my dear boy. 
It's... it's incredible. Ian is almost speechless. Ah, yes, yes. It's like seeing a million years of human evolution flash by in the blink of an eye. The doctor is wearing a thoughtful expression. But how? How can that be? Time, Chesterton, is not the same for everyone. These creatures, these people, well, they must have been living in an accelerated time stream. While we stood here watching, generations of them lived and died. They developed language, built cities, and then finally, it seems, they destroyed themselves through war. Ian does not know what to say. He feels numb, disconnected. The two travellers stand there for a moment in silence, pondering the immensity of the ruins that surround them, neither knowing what else to say. Finally, Ian speaks. I think we should go and find the others. The doctor nods and pats him gently on the back. Quite right. Quite right. Silently, the two travellers make their way back to the TARDIS. Inside, the console room is still empty. The doctor crosses to the controls and starts the engines. The TARDIS gives its great elephantine roar, and once again, Ian is transfixed by the slow rise and fall of the time rotor, glowing gently as they go spinning away into time and space. 